Thank you, Steve. I am so glad each one of you is here. Every single one of you is here today. Um, it, it's eerie how God has been speaking for a long time directly to Mark and to me, but independently, but saying the same thing. Uh, Mark read to you Psalm 100 this morning. He had no idea that that was my mother's Thanksgiving psalm. And so for 23 years now that she's been in heaven, uh, Thanksgiving time, either I or the family, we always read Psalm 100. And so God promised Mark to, to read that for our entire church today on the verge of Thanksgiving. I found out, too, this morning from Mark that, that uh, God's prompted him to study First and Second Samuel in recent weeks, and he had prompted me to study the very same books in recent weeks as well. This past week, midweek, I'd been working on this message for a long time. I, I finally got a title midweek and, and sent that into the church and sent it to Mark, and it, it was the very title of a song that God had put on Mark's heart that he's going to do later on in the service today. But if I tell you, if you could see how this has been working for a long, long time, if you didn't believe there was a God, you would begin to believe somehow, somewhere there's a God. It, it is almost eerie how many times God will say something to me and say something to him independently, but it's, it's all in parallel, all in line. I'm going to teach about worship today. Worship is really big in Scripture. It's really big to God. In Scripture, if you take the words that were written in the Old Testament and New that are translated to the English word worship, in the New Living Translation, there are 329 occasions that the word worship is actually used. So it's a huge number of times it's used. And that's just the verses where that actual term is used. There are so many other places where people are described being in worship, although the term isn't used, or they are commanded or directed or spoken into about worship. So it is pervasive. It is through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Worship is a huge deal to God, a huge deal to God. And I'm going to encourage you to take some notes on this because this is something that ought to play out increasingly in our lives in the weeks and months and years to follow. The, the literal translation of the Hebrew and Greek words that we call worship, the literal translation is to bow down, to bow down to, or to bow down in front of. In essence, it is to put your, uh, make your life subservient to someone or something to put your life in service to someone or something. And, and with, that, with that definition, every single one in the room is a worshiper. Every single person here is a worshiper of someone or something. And every single person on the planet is a worshiper of someone or something. And some of you already know, as you've heard this definition about to bow down, to make your life in service to or subservient to, many of you here, you know who or what you worship. Many of you know that. Many of you would say, not just because it's the right answer in church, but because it's really true, you worship God. Your life is subservient to him, and you serve him, you bow down to him. And there are others of you here that you're thinking, you're listening, and, and reality is you know you don't really bow down to God, you don't really worship him, you know what it is you do worship, but a bunch of you are sitting there thinking, I have no idea how this even fits. So let me help you out with this. If you can answer these questions you will know who and what you worship. What do you think about most? What do you think about most? What do you dream about most? What consumes the biggest amount of, of uh, the time and energy that you have that is at your leisure, the discretionary time and energy? What consumes most of that? What, what matters most to you? What do you value most? What are you willing to sacrifice for? And the answer to all those questions will be the same. And whatever you answer to that, that is who or what you worship. Every single one of us is a worshiper. 
Every single one is a worshiper. And a lot of people in this room that, again, it's not just the church answer. A lot of people in this room really worship God. But there are a lot of other choices, some other things that we might worship. We might worship possessions. What matters most to us, we might bow down to. We might, we might put our whole life into the cause of gaining possessions of a bigger bank account or a bigger stock portfolio or a nicer house or more houses or cars or toys, on and on. There, there are people in room this size. There are bound to be some people in this room who are or who were worshiping possessions. It's, it's one. Another option is, is to worship position. To worship, it may be to, to worship the position of being a mom or position of being a dad. That's what matters most to us. And maybe, maybe someone here longs for that to become true for them or someone values that as the ultimate value for them. Or maybe the, the position of being a wife, position of being a husband, or maybe the position in a corporation or in the business world someplace. Or maybe in the school world to be to, to, to worship having a position on the student council or to be first chair in the trumpet section or be on the first team defense in football. But, but we can worship position as well. We can worship pleasure. Okay, we can just simply, our highest aim, our biggest value, what we long for most is just simply pleasure and more of it. We can worship a person. We can worship a person. It might be that, that guy across the room, girls, that you, you just, you, you long, this is the perfect guy, and you long to be the girlfriend of, or the fiance of, or the spouse of, or vice versa, guys. Maybe it's the girl or the lady across the room, or, or maybe it's, right now, maybe it is, it is the girlfriend or boyfriend, or maybe it's the fiance, or, or maybe it's the spouse that you worship, but I'll say this, if you've been married very long, you'll quit worshiping after a while, because you'll figure out that, that this person really isn't worthy of that. They really are worthy of worship, who are, no matter how good they are. At some point, I hope you figure that out. There's so many things we can worship. We can even worship a sports team. I'm an Aggie, and, and I know a handful of people that, that their highest value in life is Aggie football. Go figure. You gotta be kidding, right? It's not even just Aggies. I know some people from the University of Texas. I know a small number. Their highest value in life is Texas football. I know a hand, small handful from Baylor. Their biggest value is football. It can be a sports team. It, it can be all of us are worshipers of someone or something. All of us are. But, but here's the deal. We will only be satisfied if the object we worship is perfect. We'll only be satisfied if the object of our worship is perfect. We'll only be satisfied. If we worship something or someone that's less than perfect, there's something hardwired in us that says our life is worth pouring out to something greater than something imperfect. There's something hardwired in us that we, we cannot be satisfied if we're pouring our life out to someone or something that is less than perfect. Jeremiah writes about this in Jeremiah 10, verses 8, and then verses 10 and 11. He says, people who worship idols, by that he means people who worship anything or person other than God. People who worship idols are stupid and foolish. Very blunt. You worship anything other than God, stupid and foolish. The things they worship are made of wood. In other words, they will be gone someday. But the Lord is the only true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. Say this to those who worship other gods. Your so-called gods who did not make the heavens and earth will vanish from the earth and from under the heavens. He said, if, if you've picked anything else other than God, if you've picked anything other than that which is perfection, then it will end in disappointment and disenchantment and disillusionment every single time. 
I said we can worship possessions, and many of us have or do worship possessions. John D. Rockefeller was the wealthiest man on the planet a century ago, by far the wealthiest man on the planet. He had more than anybody else on this entire planet. And there was a day someone asked him how much more he needed, and supposedly his infamous answer was just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. He had more than every other person had. And his answer was, it doesn't satisfy, but maybe if I get a little bit more, how foolish is that? I, I have more than anyone else, but I'm not satisfied. Maybe a little bit more will do it. Possessions will never satisfy. They never will. I talked about position, and I'm one of tens of millions, hundreds of millions who there was a time in my life where there was a position. In my case, it was in a corporation. There was a position that I worshiped, and I thought, that's what I want most. I long for most. I will bow myself down to achieve that. And when I achieved it, it was empty. It was empty. It did not satisfy. And for a brief period of time, I thought, there's got to be another position because I know a position can do it. And it wouldn't have mattered how many positions I got. In the end, it would have been empty. It would never satisfy. It's not perfect. It would never satisfy. We can worship pleasure. Mark Lacer was the man that led the Fight of Your Life seminar several weeks back, about a month ago, that was around uh, sexual purity and pornography here. And in the seminar, he tells this powerful story about one of his clients a while back. He said, this guy uh, is an icon of Hollywood. He said, if I told you the name, every single person, everyone would know his name. And he said, this person was here because this is the life that he'd pursued. He'd pursued this, this life of pleasure. And for him, it was mostly through sexual intimacy. And this guy's beginning to tell his story in private to Mark Lacer. And the stories unfold, and he says, this is my current life. This is this year, but this is a reflection of many, many years of this. He said, this year, this year, I have intimate, I've had intimate relationships with the cover of Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Issue. I've had intimate relationships this year. I've had intimate relationships with Playboy's Playmate of the Year this year. And he went on and on and on until the, the list ran so long he couldn't even remember. He could not even remember. And he was there. Because he was saying, in spite of all of that, it's not enough. And I don't think it ever will be. I, mean, I have bowed down. I pursued more than anything else pleasure. And I've, I have gotten all of this. I understand it's probably more than anyone you've ever known. It's not enough. It doesn't satisfy. It does not satisfy. can worship a person. And maybe in the girlfriend-boyfriend stage... It holds together pretty good. They seem pretty perfect. And maybe in the fiancé stage, maybe it stays together pretty good. You can worship because they seem to be perfect. But as I said, once marriage comes, it's only a matter of time. And the only thing that we can do that's so foolish is when we actually, when we, when we begin to realize this person that we love is not perfect, if we think that they're not perfect today, but, but if they would just allow me to fix them, they'll be perfect tomorrow, and tomorrow comes, and after all my efforts of trying to fix them, they're still not perfect. Then I think, well, they're not perfect today, but just if they just let me fix them, they'll be perfect tomorrow. And we, we play that charade on and on and on. There's no person that will ever satisfy. They'll ever be worthy of our worship. We're made to worship the only one who's perfect. We're made to worship the only one who's perfect, who is God. Exodus thirty four fourteen. This is a command this is a mandate. You must worship no other gods. For the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship 
with you. You must worship no other gods, just simply God himself. And, and I could argue very convincingly that God's just, he's worthy of that. Everything that exists, exists because of him. You exist. I exist because of him. The very next breath we take to give us life is from him. Everything is from him. I could argue, even if it was torturous for us to do so, I could argue he's worthy of it. He deserves it. We should do it just because he deserves it. But paired with that is this reality, the way he made us, is, is we will find, finally find deep, sustainable satisfaction when we bow down and worship him. And when he is the one that we worship with our life, he's the one we worship with our life. And when we see him, when we see him, it tends to just compel worship from us. I'll give you a place in the Old Testament and one in the New. Isaiah 6 is in the Old Testament. There's a place where this guy, Isaiah, who's, he's been a faithful follower of God for a long time. He's really close to God. In fact, he writes a big chunk of the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. But there's this time where God pulls back the curtain a little bit further and lets Isaiah see God with more clarity than ever before. And Isaiah is so blown away by the purity, the holiness, the power, the wonder, the grandeur, the glory of God. He is blown away. He is bowing down as never before, just because he's seen more of God with more clarity than ever before. There's this place in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 1, the man writing that is John the Apostle. And if you know a little bit about Christianity, then you would know John the Apostle is this guy that, that had walked with Jesus as one of his closest disciples and closest friends. Some would say the closest friend for three years with Jesus. During all of the preaching, all the miracles, during the crucifixion, resurrection, 40 days after resurrection when Jesus comes back again and again to show himself, John's there. John, he's seen Jesus in all that capacity. And now he's writing in Revelation, some time has passed, and there's this day where God pulls back the curtain just a little bit more and lets John see Jesus again, except now it's the Jesus that, that has ascended to heaven. And there is so much power and glory and purity that he, he doesn't just kneel down. He falls flat on his face. He can't help himself. He's just seen God with a little more clarity, with the curtain pulled back a little bit more. And if the definition of worship is to bow down, he's flat on his face before the God of the universe, Jesus, the very Son of God. When we see the infinite power, we see the absolute holiness and purity and goodness. When we see complete justice and yet wildly generous mercy, when we see pure truth with pure grace, when we see this infinite unconditional love, if we see that with clarity, it, it just draws out worship out of us. It draws it deeply out of us. When I began to study worship in a fresh way about 15 years ago, I, I began to see in Scripture, well, while the definition, the literal definition of the word used is just to bow down, as I looked through Genesis to Revelation, I saw three characteristics of biblical worship. And I want to give you a glimpse of those, of what those look like, because they're very helpful, I think, to have this framework of what it really looks like. It's more than just bowing down. There's some key components of it. So I want to give you a glimpse of that. And I want to preface it by saying, I've seen this, what I'm about to teach, I've seen this played out so many times, more than any other setting, in, in a weekend here that we call the Catalyst Weekend. We've been doing those for five years right now. 
And, and over the course of a Catalyst weekend, whether it's men or whether it's women, over the course of 72 hours, almost every man and almost every woman that's been there at some point over the course of the weekend, God pulls the curtain back. And I've been at every men's weekend, the entire run, the full 72 hours of, of all 10 weekends. And when the weekend begins, we're worshiping God, and there's some real worship taking place. But by the time the weekend ends, uh, it is a miracle we haven't had to pay for roofs blown off some buildings. And we don't ask for that. We don't try to manufacture that. It just happens. Why? Because someone sees God and responds with the worship, the kind of worship I'm going to describe to you. It's happened in the women's as well. It's happened in the women's as well. So this is what I've seen. And I want to preface it with this by saying that biblical worship is radical. Biblical worship is radical. It will unravel every other type of worship we've ever known, and it will remake it. It will be as though we've been trying to worship standing on our heads, and it flips us right side up. It changes things that radically. And as I was spending time 15 years back studying and then beginning to write about this and saw these characteristics, as I looked at them, I saw the first letter of each of these three words actually spelled out the, the slang word rad, okay? Now, I'm from the hippie age from long ago. And the hippie age, uh, when you talked about something being radical, it was shortened to rad. Like, hey, dude, that's really rad, dude. And I still hear that some today, usually by older folks, but by some younger folks that are catching on to how you should use that word. And so as I found myself looking at, at scriptures, I'm, I'm finding these three characteristics of real biblical worship, and I'm seeing this these first letters spelling out rad. And I thought, man, this is so radical to a life. And it's proven helpful to me for 15 years to just have that little acronym in mind and to go through this framework again and again, week in, week out, month in, month out. And so I say that because maybe it would help you. The the first characteristic is this, is, is to approach God with reverence. Approach God with reverence. Oftentimes in the Bible, Old and New Testament, we will hear that we should, uh, we should fear God. And if we're not a follower of Jesus and we're still saying to God, look, I can handle this on my own. I will face you on my own. We should fear God. We should be afraid of God. But when we're a follower of Jesus, the term used that we translate fear doesn't mean to be afraid of him. It means be in utter awe of him. Be blown away by, by the majesty and the wonder and the power and all those things. It, it's to be in utter awe of him. It means when we approach him and think about him, never do so lightly. Never, never in reverence, never casually consider God. A.W. Tozer would say when, when we really see who God is, there's no way we can lightly, lightly, flippantly talk about the man upstairs. I mean, reverence just dictates, it just dictates, oh my God, this awe, this sense of awe. In Isaiah 6, you can see Isaiah's response when, when he's responding to seeing God with the curtain pulled back just a little bit more. It, it is evident his response is utter awe of God. In Revelation chapter 1, when John the Apostle sees Jesus with a little more clarity than ever before, it's obvious he, it, it is a response of deep reverence, deep reverence. The second characteristic is adoration. Adoration. It's reverence, and then approach him with adoration. And that means having strong feelings 
of love and admiration, to have strong feelings of love and admiration for someone. In other words, it's not just to to bow down because I have to, because I should. It's to bow down because I see in him someone so worthy of love, someone who I have admiration for I cannot even measure. That's what it means to have this adoration of God and to approach him with adoration. I think of Jesus saying, Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's part of this worship. It's to approach him always with reverence, approach him with adoration. And finally, it's to approach him with devotion. It's to approach him with devotion. That would be to approach him with with this allegiance to him. I I am devoted to you and to you alone, this allegiance to him. It would mean... It would mean in this devotion to him, this devotion to you because you're God, then, then I will follow every lead you give. There's a place where Jesus says to Peter, gives him a command, and, and Peter listens to it, and he thinks this command doesn't make any sense, and I know better than Jesus, and it won't work. But he says this. He says, but because you say so, I will do it. But because you say so. And this attitude of, of worshiping God with devotion is a, this attitude of because you say so. Whatever you say, you're God. I, I am on my knees before you. I mean, my life is in service to you because you say so. This life of devotion. In weeks back, one of the storms we've had, I'm losing track of the storms we've had, but one of them that caused some damage, one of our members was prompted by the Holy Spirit, had this sense of, of needing to go to a particular neighborhood in in one of the towns that's in the bay area that we that we all come from and not an area this person would normally go to but felt prompted by god so the storm is finished and this member goes there and just walks walks the neighborhood and in the process sees a particular man and kind of feels god prompting to go talk to this man and there's an there's a conversation and engagement and and after that ends uh Later on, the man gets the prompting to go back to this man again and again. And now this member here has pulled some other FCCers in. And now there are multiple FCCers who have gone to the same neighborhood now. And, and you can see, you can see the whole attitude is, I'm going to worship you. And because you say so, I will do it. And now you can see the beginning seeds being planted of the love of God on a whole new street that desperately needs it. Why? Just because someone has been worshiping God with this sense of, of, of reverence, I, I am in awe of who you are. Power, goodness, knowledge, everything, I'm in awe of you. This sense of adoration, I, I am so in love with you. And this sense of devotion, because you say so, I will do it, whatever it is, I will do it, because simply because you say so. So I want to take that framework, and I want to take you one more place with this, okay? Th- that's, those are the characteristics of this radical biblical worship and I wanted to take you one more place, and, and this is what it is. Is, is. Two weeks ago, I said that the church is the epicenter of all godly change. The church is the epicenter of all godly change. Today, I want to say this. The church worship service is the epicenter of worship. The church, the church worship service, the gathered church like we have now, it is the epicenter of worship. God's intent is this is where the, the earthquake starts on Sunday morning. And you can see why when you realize, as I talked about two weeks ago, when the church gathers, God says, I'm there in a different way. I'm there in a deeper way than when you're by yourself. I'm present in a deeper way. And when the church gathers, it's this community of believers. And while God wants us to worship him 24-7, 
The idea is, the idea is, is in all of the distractions of the 24-7, there's this one hour on Sunday. And the whole intent of that one hour is to help us worship God. Try to do away with as many distractions as we can and have this one hour. In fact, it's a little bit more. Because by the time you show up on campus and work your way in, maybe 15 minutes doing that, an hour in this room, 15 minutes leaving, there's this hour and a half window. And there's this chance to, to really get worship down of God good. And there's a chance it'll spill over more into the other 167 hours that are out there. It says in Leviticus 23.3, you have six days each week for your ordinary work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath day of complete rest, an official day for holy assembly. An official day of holy assembly, which is for worship. It's God's It's the Lord's Sabbath day. It must be observed wherever you live. That was Old Testament. New Testament, it continued nonstop. Somewhere in the first generation after the resurrection, it just shifted from Saturday to Sunday nonstop down through all these years to have this one day set aside where the entire focus is let's let's just worship God. And this this is what it would look like if we get it the way God intends. You drive up on campus... And you're always early. So you drive up like 15 minutes before the service, right? Because you're always early. I know you are. You're always early. And, and when you get out of your car, you have this, this mindset of, of this reverence of, of God, this awe of who he is and what he might do in the hour and a half you're going to be on campus. And you're reflective of, of how, how he is so worthy of love. You're reflective of that. And then you have this devotion to God, which means do whatever he says. And you, and you get out of your car and you recall Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And instantly, instantly you look up and you see a neighbor and a neighbor and a neighbor. Maybe you don't even know, but, but it's someone that you know God deeply loves. And you realize that you're here and God's saying to you, just, just because he says so, love your neighbor. And, and it may mean just a warm smile. It may mean a handshake. It may mean a hug. It may mean a listening ear. It may mean a prayer. It may mean all kinds of things, but there's already, there's this worship mindset about who God is and how great he is and how much he's worthy of love. And I'm going to do anything you say before you ever even get in this room. You've had this window to worship God. Then you get into this room and there's music that starts. And I hope after you leave today, if you didn't already know this, it is not about the music it's not about the mechanical notes. It's not about the people that are on stage. The music is a vehicle. There's this vehicle to help us worship God. And it's the words in the songs that God puts in front of us. The music is powerful to touch our hearts, but it's the words because the words always speak toward the greatness of God that would bring us into this, this deep sense of reverence and awe of God. It's always somewhere in the words of what we sing on a Sunday morning. And then there are words in there that, that make us fall more deeply in love with God as we hear more about him. And what he's done for us. And then there are words that give us some direction, kind of some go-do, and a chance to say, because you say so, because I'm, I have this heart of devotion to you. The, the whole, it's, it's, not about, it's not about the notes. It's about God and this window through music to worship him with reverence and adoration and devotion. And then someone gets up to speak, and, and it's not about the speaker and it's not about evaluating how organized the talk is or how funny it is or how compelling it is, how good the stories are. I can promise you this. If I didn't deeply believe that God can speak through even me, I would never stand on this stage. Because the whole point of the teaching 
in worship is for you to be sitting out there saying, God, God, what are you saying to me? God, what are you saying? Not, not what is Rick Baldwin saying or whoever the speaker is. What are you saying to me? And I'm confident God could speak even through me. There's a place in the Old Testament where God literally spoke through a donkey. Okay, that's my level of confidence. He can speak through a donkey. Surely he can speak through me or anyone else on stage. And the heart of worship is, is to be hungering when someone's speaking saying, God, you are so great and so good to me. I believe you would speak to me today. You would speak to me with this heart of worship to God and saying whatever comes out of it because you say so, because you say so. And then there's time of prayer, and sometimes it's, it's maybe Mark or Steve praying as they have today, and they're praying on behalf of all of us. And the God of heaven is bowing down listening to the prayers for this church when they pray. It's this moment of worship in that. And then the offering is passed, and it's, it's one of the highest potential times of worship to say to God, because in because the reverence I have for you, of who you are, the, the adoration I have for you, the devotion I have, this, this is my act of worship. This is, this is not because I have to. This is not because the church needs to pay for bricks. I mean, this is my act of worship. This is how much I love you. This is what this is about. And then the service is done, and, and it's back to going out again and you look around, and Jesus is saying, love your neighbors yourself all over again. And all of that, all of that, all of that church worship service time is training for worshiping 24-7. Okay? Church worship time is training for worshiping 24-7. If we get it here, if we nail it here, there's a better chance it's going to spill over to the other 167 hours of the week. It's going to spill over to the time at home that we have this mindset toward God of, of reverence, adoration, and devotion, how we treat people in our home, how we think and act, how we, how we behave when we are all alone, how we act and behave in the workplace because we're worshiping God as we work, how we behave in our playtime and leisure time. There's a better chance if we get it here in this, this hour and a half window on campus, that it will spill over and we become increasingly these people who, who worship God. 24-7. It's all about God. Romans 12.1 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is the way to truly worship him. This is the way to worship him. It's all about God. For some of you here, this is... This is the starting place. You can't worship God if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. You simply can't. You got another God. You got other gods and there's only room for one. You, can't, you cannot worship the God of the universe unless you've surrendered your life to Jesus and said to him, I, I can't pull this off on my own. I need you to forgive my sins, all of them. I need you to lead me. Here's my life. I will become one of those folks that's because you say so. I, mean, I, will, I will surrender leadership to you, but I need you to forgive me and lead me. That's, that's where worship begins. And some of you in this room, you can't worship until you do that because you've not done that. 
And, and so the deal for you this morning is you can become a worshiper. You can begin to find a life that, that is deeply, sustainably satisfying. That can begin by surrendering to Jesus today and saying, I cannot pull this off on my own. I want you to be my God. Will you forgive me? Will you lead my life? I surrender to you. But there are a lot of us in this room that have been followers of Jesus. And, and for us, maybe there's been some conviction for us. And we realize we've let some other gods with little g's take the throne sometimes and, and take the wrong place, the wrong promise. Maybe we realize that there have been huge gaps of time. We're not even thinking about God, let alone worshiping him. And, and if that's the case for you, then just simply confess that to God. Say, I'm so sorry. I, I get it today. I get it. I'm so sorry. I want to go a different way with that. I, I want to go the way I understand you want me to go with this worship deal. Or maybe it's for many in this room, maybe it's a sense of, man, I've been getting Sunday all wrong. I, I just, I never had the vision. It, it is all about, from the time I land on campus, time I leave, it's all about worship. It's all about eyes on God, heart toward God. It's all about trying to all, giving him all we have of, of reverence to him. He deserves that. And adoration of him, he deserves that. And devotion to him, he's so worthy of that. That's where, that's where deep, sustainable satisfaction comes from. A lot of you here know the song, 10,000 Reasons. It's one of, uh, one of our favorite songs in which we worship God. The man that wrote that is named Matt Redman. He's a worship pastor from England. Years back in his church, they realized they had not been, had not been getting the hour right around worship. They were doing a lot of cool stuff, but, but they weren't getting it right and so they actually, they stopped doing all music for several months. So we need a massive reset. And they stopped doing all music for several months just to try to get clear all over again. What, what is this all about? And after several months, they felt like as a church, we're, we're back there. We're ready now to try to do this fully orbed expression that we're used to because I think we're ready now. We can really be focused on God. And when they decided to begin putting music back into their worship time again, Matt Redman wrote this song called The Heart of Worship. And in just a few moments, Mark Hale's going to be up here, and he's going to sing this song. And I think it could be our, our personal and our collective reset for us. And when Mark sings, I would urge you, listen to the words. Listen to the heart. And, and as you listen, have this mindset toward God. God, I, I have such reverence for you and such adoration for you and such devotion to you. Speak to me in this song. And then when Mark finishes that song, then he's gonna, he and the band are going to roll into 10,000 Reasons, which um, Matt Redman also wrote. And when that happens, then I invite you to, to engage with that song. And, and the best of your ability, worship God in that song. And, and have your mindset as the words are unfolding in front of you and coming from your heart. Have this mindset, God, this is because I have such reverence for you and such adoration for you. And such devotion for you. These words are for you. Father in heaven. May this be a fresh restart for us. Wherever we're at. Individually, collectively, wherever we're at. Father, I pray in this time. That there might be some in this room. That have never had capacity to worship. Because they've never surrendered to Jesus as king. As leader. May they do that today. They will never find satisfaction until that begins. May they do that today. 
And then, Father, for those of us that have been following, in the final minutes of this service, may our hearts and minds be fully upon you. May our lives be uh, bowed before you, subservient to you, in service to you, with a mindset of reverence and adoration and devotion, which you so deeply are worthy of. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.